0: Do you
1: like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced.
2: Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Ork. You and your models are happiest,
3: <laughs>
0: shit. In a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's
3: why we believe.
4: All the best
0: memories are hers. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick, and Dan. And this evening we are joined by two guests, recurring guests who haven't been on in a while. Uh, ladies first, welcome, Micah. <laughs> oh, uh,
4: thank you. I'm How are you so doing? happy to be back. I'm good. Yeah, we're,
0: we're happy you're back, too. It's been so long, like at least a year.
4: it's probably. been way too long. Yeah. I've been ache- like dying to get back.
0: We haven't seen you since you. November 2019. I
4: know how awful.
0: <laughs> that oh, feels Micah, like it was five years
3: ago. <laughs> Mike has been a nurse, been a brand new nursing job throughout the pandemic. Uh, as of what yeah. five months ago you graduated, so she's been real busy.
4: Yeah, crazy.
1: You know what they say: the best time to become a nurse is during fucking COVID nineteen. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, really, that's <laughs> when you're supposed to do
4: it. Yup, <laughs> it's been shall we say a walk in the park.
0: Mm, (laughs) non-ironically well thank you for coming on tonight our second guest recurring guest dr robin bunts thank you sir it is very late where you are in the on the british isle
2: i'm going to correct you immediately say it's very early where i am um but yeah early late who knows yeah it's (laughs) very something where i am it's very nice to be here thank you for inviting me
0: absolutely you kind of remind me of um uh what was the latest um Oh my God! I'm losing the name. It's so a lovely day. No. It's, oh no,
2: no, because I'm 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 going to raise by wolves beard here.
0: Have you um, seen that's that show? What I'm
2: doing. Um, I've, i think I'm seven episodes in. Is that okay. right? Something like that. Wow. Yeah. A, yeah. So yeah, there we, we go. Yeah. About this and- <laughs> he
0: loved it. I don't. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a conversation for another day.
0: Yes, it is. Thank you again for staying up, getting up, whatever.
2: I oh, appreciate
0: it. So we're here again to talk about. Uh, our, well, this is a listener feedback episode. Uh, as we discuss the last sort of um, major discussion on replicants, obviously we're going to talk about it again. It'll always come up in in context of Blade Runner because that's sort of what these stories pivot around. Um, the, as everyone knows who's been listening, we've really been discussing what they are, if they're if they're born from, if they're like grown from some type of. Um, artificial womb if they're assembled is there a mix of the two um so but, but before we get into uh listener feedback i would love to hear whoever wants to go first like what what are your thoughts about like replicants in terms of their creation and what are they do you think that they're grown do you think that they're assembled is it a, a an amalgamation of the two and how does that impact who they might be
4: all right well it's it's for me, I've always been for some, like I have no grounding in it, but for some reason I've always been so confident that they were grown. You know what I mean? Like artificial womb type deal. Um, even so far as to discuss with Patrick after listening to your guys' past episodes, I believe that the, the clearest picture we get of that is with the newborn in 2049. Um, and I always really stood by that. I don't know why. Like, there's been a lot of back and forth, and I know you guys discussed this a lot so far, especially with that. For me, the, the one thing that's kind of holding me back from being 100% confident with my idea is that is Rachel's serial number in her hip. And I know we talked about that. And, you know, part of me believes like that could have even been put in her after she was quote unquote born um but yeah so for for me i don't believe they were assembled um from pieces i believe that they were grown i don't know what the time frame is for it i don't know how it begins or 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 what not like that but i do believe that they were grown probably faster than 9 months and i i believe that they're they are grown to be their final form i don't believe they ever look like children um But yeah, that's where that's where I'm at it right now. And I'm definitely interested to talk more about it.
3: Quick, quick follow up to what Micah just said. Micah, do you? I know that you didn't come into the first Blade Runner until later on, and probably closer to when 2049 came out. But do you remember a difference in your thinking about this subject? Before twenty forty nine came out, as opposed to after you saw the newborn scene, et cetera, like, do you have an isolated memory of how you felt in the first film? Reference that question.
4: Yes, actually, good question, because that that as soon as you started talking about that, it made me remember the my mindset when I first watched um, Blade Runner twenty nineteen. I, for some reason, especially the very first time I saw it through, I thought they were more robotic. Like I thought, kind of along the lines with the wiring and terminator-esque like you guys have discussed before (laughs) um and then that like as i was watching the movie for the first time when you see zora's death and you see all the blood and everything and how human it, it looks when she dies that's part of the tragedy of it um that for sure sent me like in a confused sort of spiral. So at first I I really thought that they were just robots with very realistic looking skin, especially when you see their exploits of strength in that. Um, And then the blood from Zora got me all confused. And the fact that Rachel didn't know or was only beginning to suspect that she was a replicant, that, that sort of made it more nebulous. But then of course, when you see 2049 where they went with it, um, it became more clear but that could even be explained by advancements in technology in that world. Like who knows how Tyrell built them versus how um, um, Wallace. Wallace, but sorry, blanked on the name for a second. I have a tattoo of his logo on my arm. Anyway, I, uh, so who knows if there's a huge difference between how Wallace makes them and how Tyrell makes them. And I think that would be kind of interesting to think about whether or not the process would be the same. I know that Wallace has control over the technology, but who knows if he changed the process when he began to make his quote-unquote angels.
1: We didn't even actually talk about that, yeah. about the evolution and the technology of the world, of 30, years of, 30 of, years of industry. Industry? Of industry. because <laughs> <That's laughs> I was speaking Spanish for an hour. Yeah, this, this is before. what happens. Oh, industry. Yeah. Do you <laughs> see what happens, <laughs> Patrick? It's interesting because you know, like we we see that with the spinners, you know, we see that with other elements of the technology, we see that with a lot of the cityscape of Los Angeles. But we don't, you know, but the replicants, although they're obviously different because it's a different Nexus generation, um, you know, they would be similarly advanced quite a bit mm-hmm. by that point in terms of how they're built. So yeah, that's a good point.
4: Maybe the process is totally different.
1: Yeah, weirdly, I had
2: rarely thought about what it would look like to manufacture or create or grow a replicant. Um, I guess my way into this before listening to your, um, your last two podcasts was um, thinking about what Wallace, what Wallace was trying to do in 2049. And what, the first few times I saw the film, I thought, "Oh yeah, no, of course, yes. If replicants can reproduce themselves, that you know, that's a massive technological, um, that's a massive technological advance. Wallace can make much more money. Blah blah blah. That all makes perfect sense." But going back to what Misha was saying, it then it occurred to me that that really makes no sense whatsoever. And this is the one part of Twenty Forty Nine that doesn't ring true to me. That if you can, yeah, that from an economic standpoint if you can create a um a humanoid adult creature in nine months let's say surely that's got to be cheaper than having a baby in the traditional way and then waiting until it's 15 or 16 or 18 or something until it can actually work and and create value for you um so yeah so the idea that um Having a workforce that can reproduce itself is economically beneficial struck me as as a strange one um, compared to the alternative. And I was immediately catapulted to Star Wars Episode II, which is not a place I particularly wanted to be catapulted <laughs> to. Because the, the thing about that is, you know, they clone this what they clone this army, but then they have to spend, you know, 18 years with all these clones in kindergarten and then in school and you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um so yeah, and I was thinking, is, is that really what Wallace wants to do? Um, does that really make any sense? Um, so yeah, so so that was kind of my way in. Insofar as I've given it any thought subsequently, I kind of agree um, with the kind with what Misha was saying and what Patrick said on the show, um, which is that they are they are synthetic human beings. Um, So they are human in every way um, that we can possibly um, imagine. The the key difference is that they are that they are genetically engineered and that they are produced by some kind of ectogenesis. That is to say, some kind of artificial womb outside of human body. So yeah, so that's kind of my thinking at this stage in the game. So yeah, so I don't really consider them to be like Terminators. They're clearly not like Bishop and Alien. I wouldn't have thought. Oh yeah, I say clearly to my mind, they're clearly not like that. So yeah, so that's kind of my way into it.
1: Is ectogenesis
2: a real thing? Um, ectogenesis is a word which you can find in Huxley's Brave New World. Um, So, um, kind of shortened to babies in bottles. Yeah. Ectogenesis.
1: Yeah. Very cool.
2: good. It's a good word, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a that great is a good word. It sounds yeah. like a Ghostbusters term, but it's a great
0: one. <laughs> well, here's the question. So, then if these things are grown in a womb, they have to then experience some type of Intermediary childlike, teenage like, um, post adolescence change, too. Like, you can't just grow an adult without it passing through the phase of a child. Like, not
4: with our technology.
0: Yeah, but how would that even be pa- plausible? How do you get, uh, how do you get uh, whatever, uh, a fertilized egg and say, oh, we're skipping this part? It's going straight into an adult. I don't even know if that would be possible. Um, but not to say that, like, I, I do think that it, it it's confusing because also in 2049, you have Joshi who says, who makes a point to say, you're not born. I've never, and you know, Kay is saying, I've never killed anything that's been born before. Um, if these things, these, whatever they are, people are not, if they're grown in a womb, I would, th- that's a very close proximity to birth, um. But they're take they're ve- being very specific, saying you are not born. That's um, I think that there's again, obviously this is all speculation, but I get these key words to me um, throw me off um, because I even think there's a lot of things that we use that are manufactured, but that doesn't mean they were grown. Twinkies are in a package and we released them but they weren't grown in a package you know what i mean not to say obviously oh, there's a twinkies oh. might have been grown <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, that's
4: they'll
0: be sitting on the shelf 20 years later the same uh, yeah, but
4: you
0: know. i i i know that there's things you know uh the newborn she's covered in the Whatever she's covered in that looks a little bit like afterbirth, but she's comes out of the package much like manufactured items come out of packages. And I, I would say I'm leaning more towards Dan and Patrick's uh, supposition that there's some type of growth happening. But I also don't know if I fully believe that there's no augmentation or something because of the way that the serial numbers are in there and because of super strength too. Um, I mean, these things have super strength. Batty has super strength. I'm not saying that there's like, I mean, maybe there's steel rods or steel plates in there. I don't know. I'm not really sure, but there's something different about them that makes, because we've, we are people that live in a world full of millions upon millions of different kinds of creatures, but we're not, we don't take a, a moment to say, Oh, that came from an egg. Like to be sure, like that's not one. They're very specific with their language with these with replicants, um, skin jobs. Like you're stretching skin over something that's foreign. Um, like yeah, he's a skin job. Like it's not quite us. Something's different about him, and though that trips me up, um, and allows the larger conversation of are. Are there other parts coming in? Is there augmentation? What happens during the growth process? What's infused with them? I don't know.
4: Can I respond to that really quick? Because that made me think um, of how interesting, like the importance of birth and womb and all of those words that you were just mentioning, Jamie, um, because now it's occurring to me that maybe part of the humans of the Blade Runner world's dominion over these replicants is to maintain that control by using the words, you weren't born. You're not allowed to have that gift of being born. You're not allowed to have the gift of coming from a womb because those are our words, right? So it's clear to me from your comment, like, wow, they do make a huge deal about it, especially in 2049 talking about how this would break the world if replicants have the same thing that we humans have who's to say that they won't they won't be on top now so i thought that was pretty interesting just the language and the importance of the language and the the cultures of dominion with the replicants and the humans
1: and i, I think language is at the heart of a lot of this and, and i i want to bring up one um, biology thing too in a moment but just something you're saying honey that reminded me of is that, um, you know, we use language to differentiate ourselves from one another all the time. And, and it's very frequently a pejorative thing, right? So like, for much of the 20th century, you know, people who were d- born out of wedlock were bastards, right? Like, they were children, but those children were bastards, right? Or like, for example, you know, if you were of mixed ethnicity, right? Like, you, you were referred to by some third, you know, like, pejoratively used term, right? To sort of, to otherize you, right? Um, and I think that with replicants although like the the if you're if we're going with this ectogenesis idea um just for the sake of you know conversation like to me the manufacturing process is essentially the same right you have like a fertilized egg or you have some sort of genetic material that's then grown um you know whether it's in utero or or in bagaro as i said in the last episode like there's some kind of a growth of an incubated growth process happening right and then it comes out of some sort of a shoot and so you know, when you say Jamie in 2049, it looks like the newborn's coming out of a manufactured process. I agree because she's coming out of a plastic bag, basically, right? She's she's being dumped out of like what looks like the end of a conveyor belt, but it also looks a lot like a birth canal to me. Like it looks a lot like the the soft tissue that babies, you know, are pushed through. So there's something fascinating about how like this process is so similar to like a, a you know biologically human birth process, and yet. It's almost like the kind of a thing when it's so close that you have to put it down to to like keep it from getting merged with yourself, right? You have to say, like, oh, no, you weren't born. You know, you weren't actually born the way you think you were born. You We, we created you. It doesn't matter if everything else was the same. We created you. Um, just briefly hopping off, and I know Dan has some um, evolutionary biology to drop on us in a bit, so he can do that now or later if he would like to. Um But I just want to say in terms of Jamie, you raise a terrific point, I think, about how, you know, you still have to go through this growth process, right? Like even if, you know, we're not talking about Kaminoans and, you know, and et cetera, in in episode two, like if if we're talking about just an accelerated growth process vis-a-vis replicants, um, like they would still be biologically pubescent at some point, right? They would still be biologically adult at some point before they would emerge. But what I'm thinking with that is that the material that goes into that pubescence, the material that goes into that adult is all present in that embryo. It's all present in the earliest stages of our development. It's all in there, right? There's mutations that happen over time that change the ultimate outcome of that thing, whether it's our environment, whether it's gene encoding errors, whether it's from cigarettes or something, but there's mutations. But basically, the, the stuff that is in an adult human is very similar to the stuff that's in that baby. So if you could just basically trip the developmental processes and just say like, this is the final genetic material that we need to get to, let's just like take off the growth inhibitors because there's, I mean, also a lot of reasons why we don't grow that quickly, right? Biologically speaking, like for one thing, we need to be able to fit through a birth canal in the first place. So we need to be small when we come out, right? Um, For another thing, we need to be taken care of because we're not self-sufficient. So we're, you know, engineered via evolution to be cute and small and pick upable and to be coddled because the idea is to be taught a lot of things so that our brains, which are the most important parts of the human body from an evolutionary standpoint, can be given as much nutrients as possible, right? And so that's why we don't talk for a long time. It's why we don't move for a long time because the brain is getting all of this energy, a caloric energy, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is that um, if you could basically turn off the inhibitors that keep us small for a long time and you know accelerate the growth of our brains and accelerate the growth of the things that need to be there present, in an adult. And for what it's worth, cut off the hormonal things that you need to differentiate sexually, right? from Because it doesn't actually, there's no, you know, if there's no actual reproduction sexually going on, it doesn't matter if you have gonads, right? It doesn't matter if you have a uterus, right? So like, there's a lot of things that I I could see them cutting off in that early process to allow that really quick mutation to happen in a really inhumane way. Anyway, there's a lot in there.
3: Yeah, that's I, I already have three completely separate points that each of you brought up that I wanted to kind of follow up on. So starting with Robin's point about procreation and how sort of this idea of trying to get replicants to be self-replicating and procreating in a sense is not efficient. I agree is not efficient from a manufacturing initial creation perspective. I don't think the, the quest to create a a functioning womb and a replicant was any kind of replacement for whatever growth manufacturing process they had but the way i think about it is if you then took these replicants you created and sent them off world into whatever other solar systems galaxies other planets you may not have the infrastructure to produce replicants where they are there and they're going to need replacements, especially the next sixes, right? Which already went off world but had shortened lifespans. So you're going to need to be able to reproduce and and so I see it as a an addition to the manufacturing process, meaning that okay, if we send this colony of replicants to this far-off planet over a 30-year span with accelerated growth, or at least with them all being adults, they're going to create their own colony and be able to reproduce. We don't necessarily have to ship all this manufacturing to create a replicant factory over there, which would have exorbitant expenses, et cetera, right? You're essentially shipping a product that already has a 3D printer, quote unquote, inside of it and can replicate itself. So I think that's what Wallace was going for. It's this added multiplication that over time would have a financial benefit to the company and to their process, but not to replace the initial process, which of course was, I think, creating replicants at a much faster
1: rate. Um to you Jamie's know, one sentence one sentence response to that is you don't need a firmware update if you can have people selectively breed with one another, right? Like the replicants that were sent over there could be essentially self-improving and self-sufficient by just selecting mates that were most appropriate for what they were going for. Right. So like Right. People need to be pushing these updates and things like that
3: possibly parts of their evolution, sexual selection, that type of thing that could also be programmed. Again, not the word we use for computers, but programmed in the sense that Batty was programmed to be a soldier. Right? We don't get the feeling that he was trained to do that. We get the feeling that he was created with that already implanted in him somehow. We know the Nexus 6 – and I'm mixing 2049 and 2019 here. We know the Nexus 6s do not have implanted memories, but they did have this programming, which we don't understand how that works, but they came out ready to be – sex worker, soldier, heavy lifter, whatever their category was. To Jamie's point where he's saying, you know, I'm picturing this process where there'd be an adolescent stage, there would be a baby stage. So I did some quick math, which kind of makes sense to me, you guys tell me if this makes sense to you. But let's just for the ease of numbers, let's just say that average lifespan of a human was 70 years, right? If you compare that to the four year lifespan that at least Nexus 6s had, the math works out to about an 18 times sped up um, rate of growth which potentially could have led to their accelerated decrepitude the fact so if you assume that from zero to four is like a human being zero to 70 that works out to about an 18 year old so to get to full adult growth would take about a year so if you picture those stages happening within whatever artificial womb situation you have going on you could go from implanted creation egg, whatever that stage is to fully grown Roy Batty program to be a combat soldier. And maybe with some indoctrination, some introduction, right? When he's woken up in about 12 months. So I think to me, theoretically, that could fit into this whole, they're, they're grown quickly. They live quickly and they die quickly. That's like, how the Nexus 6s were generated. Now, of course, we know 7s, 8s, and 9s, they got rid of the time span, so that changes things a little bit. But I was thinking about that back to the uh, original Replicates or the Nexus 6 stage. And then we were talking, I think it was Patrick, we were talking about, uh, well, Jamie was talking about this too, sort of discrimination and how is it important where someone comes from? Are they created through the normal natural process of conception or are they produced in a lab? Are they manufactured, etc.? And I think human history shows that we as humans, we have discriminated against every possible iteration of humans that we possibly could in different countries, different eras, by skin color, by social status, like white people have had different, like layers of discrimination if you go back to again the early 1900s like the irish and the italians and the poles like technically are all white people if you're looking at a racial construct but they were all treated differently and there was a hierarchy there so it's no surprise to me that a human who isn't a hundred percent exactly the same as a human you would want to separate it because it's like well that's that's not me we're not like that this is a separate thing and they you know and they didn't have rubber scan like we said they're not the terminator they don't have mechanical parts so they're Harder to sort out, which probably led to the fact that they were marked also both for tracking and ID with these serial numbers, right? Rachel's is a separate issue because of the in between films stage and the fact that she was an experiment and possibly the only Nexus 7 that ever existed. So that's a very particular case where her exact manufacturing specifications and circumstances around her serialing, etc., are necessarily duplicated. That may have been just a special case. We don't know. So those are my thoughts so
4: far. Mirror data makes a man. A and C and T and G. The alphabet of you.
0: All from four symbols.
4: I'm only two. One
2: and zero.
4: Half as much, but Twice as
0: elegant, sweetheart. You know, another uh, idea that I had in terms of production what if possibly these um, human bodies are grown and they're asexual? And then, based off need, something is injected or whatever, whatever process there is. And, like, okay, we need 300 pleasure models for this colony. And there are bodies essentially in Bagaro that are nondescript, that are asexual. And then they they push them to where they need to go for the rest of that time, so they're ready, so they're off, so they're grown, but they they they're they're in a stasis, so it doesn't matter. And you mean like always? An,
3: a, you mean like androgynous? Like yeah, like no androgynous. Thing. So
0: right, right. so their their um their growth pattern is halted at a certain point, um, or it's engineered to to be this uh, as such where there are no discernible. Sex organs. they just neutral, almost. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so they find out what they need, and then they provide it, and they're pushed the rest of the way. Oh, we need soldiers. Okay, there are three hundred bodies over here. Let's push them into, you know, let's give them this this concoction, and that like the pushes them into being soldiers. Yeah, like a final stage. That means makes you a could lot of sense. you could create and you could manufacture whatever you wanted to because you have these these neutral bodies waiting you know and you're
1: starting with this blank slate that you know will be viable that you know doesn't yes. can get cancer that you know will age the appropriate way that like this is like this is the the genome that we have established that's the prototypical nexus 7 or nexus 8 genome right and like now then when it's ready for shipping we do the final touches to it,
3: you know? Yeah. And it's, and it seems that the creators of the comics went along with some kind of idea like that because Patrick shared an image with us where you can see replicants floating in tanks of liquid. Um, Jamie
1: actually shared that, but yeah, the, the, I remember that part too. And,
3: yeah. and while I think the what was in the preview for 2049 and what we see when Kay walks into Wallace, while that seems to be more of a museum type of setup, you don't get the sense that those replicants floating around are anything viable. Like They're just examples of their evolution and their manufacture process. These are in higher technology tanks with tubes and stuff almost reminds me of the matrix. So it seems like something where, like Jamie said, that does seem to reference some kind of stasis. So it seems like the people who wrote the comic book were thinking right along your lines.
0: And there are specific model numbers in those, in those. Oh, cool. I didn't notice that.
4: Well, you know what I think about that particular image in 2049, that when love is taking K down to the archives is this is oh, this is where she takes. This is the walkway that she takes her clients. See, this is this is our this is our heavy model. He's very strong. We can do that in about a month. Oh, this is our this is one of our first pleasure models. Yep, we this this one's very popular if you like. But we can have her go with her and like. I feel like that's where love just shows what can happen and when it can happen, and it has all the model numbers there so that her clients can just kind of look at like it a, and be like, okay, like I'll take. Like
0: a car dealership. Middle.
4: Right, sure
1: showing the, the top of the tank. Her display. Her <laughs>
4: Poppy's got a great room. warranty. <laughs> and
0: maybe, maybe you lost a spouse. Maybe you lost a family member. We can do oh, that we too. We can
4: customize. Yes,
0: we can customize, we can customize this one for you. To look
4: exactly like yep. her. Exactly think about like it. it. I
1: mean, they they have the gene prototyping materials. We see that in twenty forty nine. We see the gene the um, the uh, when they're going through the uh, the acids. Oh my god, what is it called protease? You know what I'm talking about. You know whether they're going through the what are the cgt C- the dna
4: oh yeah the yeah the the building blocks of life yeah basically. the
1: amino acids that yeah. like create dna right right like that whole part that, like, they clearly yeah they can go yeah they can go through all that material you know and they have it for every single person apparently mm-hmm. so like it wouldn't be a huge leap to think if you have a neutral starting point you can basically just inject the mutational stuff that you need to get to that person again yeah, yeah.
4: like oh you provide the dna sequence and we'll make your husband come back yeah
0: yeah i mean the i would it would make sense if the industry is Ten times what it was under Tyrell, whereas Tyrell, he was providing essentially boots on the ground for things that were needed, whereas Wallace was like, hey, we can do whatever you want to. I mean, and then what did he do? He brought Rachel back in 2049. He, mm-hmm. um, he did exactly that. We can customize. Here you go. Even yep. Lo- Love uses the term customize. Mm-hmm.
4: We can customize to your specific needs. Right.
0: When we eavesdrop on her phone
3: conversation with a client, that's exactly the type of conversation they're having where I think she says something along the lines of, you know, they could be really smart and et cetera. But if you're doing mining, you don't necessarily need that. So she's talking about altering their intelligence level based on what she needs. So definitely
2: customizable. So I was very taken with Micah's point about language um, that um, yeah that we shouldn't read too much into the words that are used because the words that are used are going to be inherently political um, and so yeah so the whole point about born what on earth does that mean we have a you know we assume that when we hear the word born it it implies a certain biological process you know it may well not and I'm just thinking about Macbeth obviously I'm thinking about Macbeth it's like two in the morning why wouldn't I be thinking about Macbeth <laughs> um, and I'm thinking about the point about Macbeth is that um, is that he is not of woman born? Okay, he's not of woman born, and and he's de- the Macbeth's birth. He's, he's delivered by C-section. Cesarean, so, yeah, yeah, he's delivered by cesarean. Um, so I would think, you know, delivered by cesarean. Of course, he's born of a woman, but in the context of the time, that was not of woman born. So, so yeah, my point is, it you know. What we mean by born is, is very flexible, depending on the culture, depending on the circumstances, depending on the political necessity. One or two kind of examples of this kind of naming thing come to mind. One, of course, is the distinction between soldier and enemy combatant. Where a soldier is somebody who has rights under the Geneva Convention, and an enemy combatant is somebody who has no rights whatsoever. You know, is one born, is one made? No, of course not. You know, they're they're basically exactly the same thing, but for legal reasons, we call them different things. And um, it strikes me, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you um, use the technology of language to further stigmatize this group um, and further disempower them, and to to imply some kind of justification for robbing them of of the rights that you know in other contexts might be considered to be inalienable. So yeah, so apologies again for getting your name wrong. But there we are. But yeah, on the subject of language, yeah, I thought that's exactly my reading of of manufactured, born. I wouldn't read too much into those things.
3: Yeah, and that's that's a great point about language is that both subconsciously and consciously as cultures, we use that a lot. Governments use it. Individuals use it. And you can tell a lot about someone's frame of thinking or where they came from or how they grew up based on the language they use. Um, and it, these are going to sound political. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but you know, there's the famous statement along the lines of what you were saying about soldiers. Uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? And like that totally depends. Or if you're talking about immigration, uh, there's a choice to be made when you say that to when you say an illegal alien, as opposed to an undocumented migrant, as opposed, you know what I mean? Like there are several choices you can make. They all mean the same thing, but they have a certain angle to the speech. And so it's no surprise that we see words like skin job and Skinner for a, what we think is a Blade Runner who's a skin job combines to form Skinner and those kinds of things, you know, uh, sort of uh, nicknames or derogatory words or some kind of distinction because humans want to categorize things and put people in different categories so that you can try and make your way into the more elevated category i mean that's just something that goes on throughout history right
1: we are the great taxonomists a, a quick point that i don't want to miss to robin's point is joy says the macbeth quote in there she says a version of it right where she's talking to Kane she says of woman born yep. pushed into the world wanted Love. Oh yeah. So she directly references Yeah, she does, that. doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Got to bring joy. Into
1: the episode. <laughs> and, and now we talk about joy. Let's talk okay. about joy
4: forever.
1: <laughs> no, no. Of
2: computer exactly, the way, I'm, the, I'm the president of the Joy Fan Club, so if people want to join, just you know DM me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but I, should I think we jump a, in? A, it's a
1: fascinating point. Yeah, and we have a lot of listener feedback. I, I want just as a as an overarching thing before we get into all that. Um, the level of audience engagement on this series so far has been so fascinating um, and uh, and so passionate. We've gotten more emails about this than we've gotten about any other topic. We've gotten probably more comments than we've gotten about anything else. I've gotten personally more text messages than I've gotten about other episodes we've ever done. These replicant shows have really resonated with people in very different ways, uh, in a way that actually I think only Joy has previously when it comes, at least to 2049. This is something that people feel very strongly about, and, and it's and it's been really wonderful seeing that level of engagement and um we're going to get to that momentarily but before we do i'd like to propose we do have the perspective of an evolutionary biologist here tonight um said through the words of her partner who is also here tonight on a microphone of woman born pushed into the world wanted and loved so uh dan you want to <laughs> give us a little bit of background on the scene in 2019 with her with roy and uh, and his woman who pushed him into the world as it were
3: yeah so um I've been wanting for years to get a scientist's perspective on this scene in the original um, Blade Runner. We know that um, David People's daughter was in college at the time, and he was trying to come up with a name for these things, and she was talking about cell replication, and so together or on her suggestion, they came up with the term replicants, which is really great, and they didn't have to pay Burroughs Estate for that one. You know, that was an original thought, which is really cool, and we love that term, but ever since that conversation where Batty gets to Tyrell's um, penthouse and is walks in and wants more life and they get into a scientific conversation. And I think aside from the philosophical ramifications, obviously we've talked certainly a lot about it. This is a man meets his creator scene and there's lots of big overarching elements. But I think one big part of it is to show you that Batty is really intelligent because he is able to converse about genetics and about this process with Tyrell on a pretty equal footing. He's asking him very specific questions. I think that was the one of the purposes of the script, the way it was written. But not having the background in biology, I never knew how realistic it was. I was like, it sounds cool, you know, like I don't know how accurate it is. And I've asked people here and there, but I finally got um, Jackie, who's an evolutionary biologist. Um, to, and she also has a lot of roommates who are PhDs. One of her roommates studies the brain and studies neurology. And so he had some input as well. So I asked her, what do you think about this conversation? And there's an interesting evolution to Jackie's thinking throughout this process. So see if you can catch it. Here's what Jackie said, quote, I think what he's trying to say is that his lifespan is genetically encoded as is, and that there's no way to alter it which we know isn't scientifically intractable. CRISPR has been invented, right? So there is a way to actually manipulate genetics on a really small scale. With the second part, Batty's asking why not inject him with some sort of protein that blocks the cells that are in some way responsible for cell death, i.e. his death. But doing so would cause an error in DNA replication, a process that is continually ongoing on your in your body. That a virus would develop Not sure how viruses or viral DNA is related to any of this. There's some sort of explanatory piece that's not provided. And side note, as a layman, that is the only thing that I knew for sure that was incorrect is they're talking about genetics and biology, and then talking about a virus being created through that process, which is just not how viruses work. So that's the only thing that stuck out to me as a non-scientist. She says, oh, EMS3 is a mutagen it's used to produce random mutations, usually in test animals like C. elegans, worms, may or may not be used on mice still. So this entire conversation they're having is just about the concept of mutating his cells in order to increase his lifespan, which is kind of nonsensical because you can't target an aging gene with a mutagen. That's that entire conversation. Batty, what about EMS3 recombination? Tyrell, we've already tried it methane sulfonate as an alkylating agent, and potent mutagen, it created a virus so lethal the subject was dead before it even left the table. All the things Tyrell mentions here are mutagens that change the DNA of living organisms, but all those approaches are nonspecific. So I imagine the conversation they'd be having in the age of script, uh, CRISPR would be very different. So here she's referencing the 80s when this script was written as opposed to now. This conversation also assumes that they've cracked the genetic underpinnings of aging, which at this point we haven't. We know that there are some genes involved in longevity, but I think that's about it. Alternatively, it could be that Batty just had some gene that controls his short lifespan, like a cell death or terminate gene, which would kind of make sense since they're programmed to die at four years. Although the wording of, you were made as well as we could make you, seems to negate that, since it suggests that the longest they could extend their lifespan was four years. But with that interpretation, he could be asking if there's more of a way to shut that off so that he can live indefinitely. And Tyrell is saying no. Once that's been programmed in the genetic code, there's no switching it off. Specifically because those mutagens are nonspecific, and we'll probably just give him robot cancer or some virus as he's describing. I'll, I'll put quotations under the robot there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like that explanation more actually. It makes more sense than the first way I interpret it. I interpreted it. If I got super poetic, this conversation could be highlighting the flip side of granting Batty life. As with the genetic code of organic life, cell death is an inherent feature. It comes with it. Our human genome allows us to live X number of years because of the way we age. But Batty's aging is advancing so that he can only live four years, which could be related to the light that burns twice as bright, quote. So that would explain the we made you as best we could line. The most similar parallel would be like flowers for Algernon. Yeah, I'm content with this explanation. It makes it less nonsensical and way more philosophical. And then she confirmed with her roommate who studies the brain that no, we have not identified this like aging gene to be able to target it and stop or slow down aging. So that was the scientific response to that conversation, which again, I think the coolest part of that whole evolution to me is that it started from a very skeptical sort of analyzing the minutiae of the science and what's wrong with it and ends up in a place where poetically and philosophically her opinion was, but I can kind of see why they wrote the script like this and for the knowledge they had at the time, it's actually well written and it works well with the film, which I really love. Like I love to see that evolution throughout that process.
4: It also, it always struck me that um, Tyrell might be saying, you know, I did the best I could because he's literally cornered by someone who's like ten thousand times stronger than he is too. Like, I had always imagined that in that he they he um, he purposefully programmed them for only four years um, on purpose for sure. Turned it on. Maybe he doesn't have the te- technology to reverse it once they are um, alive for whatever that means. Um, and I and I think that that always kind of was a hint at Tyrell's character that he would say look like i did the best i could with you you know like he's trying to save face a little bit in that moment where his he knows his life is on the line at least that's what i always got from that conversation Um, But it's so cool to hear someone of her expertise talk about that sort of stuff.
3: And and I think what you said makes sense too about with the genetics, potentially, they could rework it in future replicants. But once it's born, and it has grown, you can't just go in there and manipulate the genetics to give something more life. That makes a lot of sense.
1: I I would like to spend a moment on this before we get to the listener feedbacks. I I think I I really want to hear what you all have to say about this idea that we've been spending all of this time for these 35 hours of this (laughs) particular episode arc so far, talking almost exclusively about the ways replicants are born, if that's what you want to call it, right? We've been talking a lot about how they're created, and we've been talking a lot about how they live, but we really don't talk about how they die, right? That's something that we have essentially avoided talking about because I think- it's potentially problematic. It's, it's more, mis- I mean, to me, it's in some ways scientifically more mysterious than the other stuff, because there is no, as Jackie said, there's no like Widowmaker gene that is just sitting there latently waiting to kill you. Right. That we know about that. I mean, I mean, if, if somebody on this call can figure that out, that probably is some money in that, I would think, but there's also, it's interesting, Dan, you were mentioning earlier, this idea of an accelerated decrepitude, right? This idea that They, as they, uh, you know, that they are born quickly, they incubate quickly, they grow quickly, develop quickly, and then they die quickly. But there is no aging going on once they hit that sort of prime, right? Once they look like they're between the ages of 30 and 45 or something, they basically just lock in right there and then they turn off, right? Right. Man.
3: The only the only difference between a one-year-old replicant, Nexus 6 anyways, between a one-year-old and a four-year-old replicant is the experiences they've gained and whether they've been able to balance their emotions at all. But physically, they're not aging four times as much. There's there's no right. difference. They don't look like they're about to die. Batty looks no. as good as he did when he was first born or created, right?
1: Yeah, Batty's in his prime from a physical standpoint, and then he just suddenly starts to to die, right? And we see, of course, with later Nexus models, like with Sapper, that he's clearly visibly aging because of, of his longer lifespan. So there was some mechanism going on there that looks more like typical human aging processes. Right. But aging and death are two of the most obviously problematic things in, in medicine, because they are things that like, we all have a pretty huge vested interest to try to stave off. Like it's something that people are, I mean, you know, cosmetically trying to fix, you know, but with, with makeup and cosmetic procedures, people are doing all these different health things to try vitamins. to live longer, you know, right. vitamins, exercise, all of these things that we all do every day to try to basically stay as young as we can for as long as we can until we, something just kills us suddenly when we're old, right? Um, that's kind of the the goal, right? Um, and, and yet we really don't have very much control over it because of the breakdown of the telomeres that create us, right? So like there's this process that's going on and we can't stop it from happening and we can isolate it and we can look at where it's happening and we can watch the mechanisms by which it happens. But just like Jackie said, Part of the mechanism of life is the mechanism of death, right? Part of the birth and the growth of cells is the is the absolutely important death and decay of cells, because without that, we would never live more than a couple hours, right? Like our, all of our all our skin would harden, and we would just fall over dead. So. In that idea that we have to grow and we have to thrive is that idea that the only way we can do that is to also be dying continually the entire time until the growth stops enough to the point where the death overcomes us and our cells stop to replicate and then we, we die. And that's something that uh, is so interesting and it's something that, you know, you would think with replicants that they would be almost be having progeria, right? For example, which is a genetic disorder that, um, you know, makes people age extremely quickly. Um, and so when they're, you know, Twelve years old biologically, you know they're they're in their eighties or their nineties,
3: or just Methuselah. Um, if you if you want to stay within the the canonical, yeah, Methu-
1: yeah, Methuselah syndrome, right? Exactly, yeah. This idea of a premature aging disorder, right? And, and think about the weirdness of that, right? You have this this replicant engineer, human replicant engineer, who was unable to stop himself from prematurely aging, and living this life of solitude, you know, as this hermit.
0: Is JF a replicant?
1: I I don't think so okay i don't don't think so
0: is this a jf (laughs) rep
3: no i just just, the way the way (laughs) you positioned
0: (laughs) it you said a replicant and i'm thinking oh he's a replicant engineer but then but then i also when chris says to him what's your problem like she almost identifies that he's one of her them but you're different than us what's your problem i don't know it's entirely
1: possible yeah
3: it's possible. I mean, the same as Gaff could be a replicant, Decker could be, you know, that, that that's always kind of a possibility unless it's confirmed. I mean, even Tyrell was a replicant at one point in earlier scripts, uh, right? Where they, in fact, he was even robotic in an early version of the script. Um, I think we brought this up before, but I'll just share it again. I don't believe in this theory, but it's an interesting one about JF um, where people really attach to his line um, there's some of me and you. And if you look at all the deleted scenes, what's that?
1: We didn't even bring that up. You're right.
3: And I think if you look at all the deleted scenes and read all the versions of the script, I forget where it's at, but it's highlighted that JF makes hands. He's a genetic engineer that specifies in building hands. And so that was his area of expertise. But some people, especially watching the final cut and the cuts where those deleted scenes are not in there, so you don't know what JF's specialty is. Some people have alluded to the fact that it may be that they got the genes to create accelerated decrepitude from JF because of his Metuselus syndrome and they implanted it into replicants and that's the mechanism by which they have this accelerated aging. Um, I don't personally believe in that theory, but I think it's a really cool one to explore and it's interesting and we've talked about it before and, and some people think that's what JF is saying when he's saying there's some of me in and you. And,
4: well, going back to what Patrick said about the death, the only natural death that we see in the movies is baddies, correct? We don't see any other natural death of replicants. Of the termination of a
1: lifespan, yeah.
4: Yeah. We see like these monstrous terminations of these replicants. Um, but the only natural one is baddies and it's it's like so tragic and beautiful that he just kind of stops moving. And I wonder like and and then in our audio drama, we have, um, a replicant whose lifespan naturally ends and we don't get to see it. We get to hear it. And I just, it always makes me think of like, oh my gosh, what's going on within their bodies? Like what's happening to them? What do they feel like? It, it's just another interesting point to talk about, like the creation of these replicants and their lives and how they end. And now, um, now that we ta- are talking more about 2019 and about, um, how JF specializes in hands. And then um, we have Batty visiting the person who specializes in eyes. He's literally working on an eyeball. So maybe that's a clue that somehow some, they were being assembled bit by bit in the world of 2019. But I I think I'm going back to like, maybe the technology evolved. So it's, it looks different between Wallace and Tyrell. Um, This is also interesting.
3: Yeah, we did bring that up, Micah. In I forget whether it was the first or second episode. It was like the beginning one. of the first episode.
4: So <laughs> so I it's can't okay remember. remember no,
3: no, it's fine. We talked about a lot of stuff. So you guys my, talk a lot. We do, especially we. <laughs> my personal theory on that because I think that one of the m- things that gets in the way the most about this artificial womb, they're grown from scratch sort of concept is the fact that she is playing around with all these eyeballs and has an eye lab and he seems to be contracted by Tyrell to make eyes. And the way I feel like I go around that because I do believe that they're um, created in an artificial womb and grown as opposed to assembled is that um, ectogenesis. Thank you. <laughs> is that Chu is an engineer. He's experimenting on eyes. So he, in fact, one thing he could be doing is figuring out how to put serial numbers on the eyes. Who knows if he's a precursor to what ended up happening in 2049. But that's the way I look at it. I don't think he's manufacturing eyes for the application of implanting them into, yeah, like Westworld style. (laughs) I think that he is a genetic engineer who's experimenting on eyes So that he can change their abilities, their vision, maybe a serial number, who knows. But he needs actual genetically engineered or animal or whatever they are, eyes to actually practice on. That's my personal theory behind Shoes Lab. And that's how I I maintain my my theory still I
4: like it.
0: Patrick, back to what you were talking about in terms of death. I think it's important because I, I right when you were saying all that, I was imagining, can you imagine where you decide, say we're 80 years in the future, and you decide, I would like a child, but I can't take care of it for that long, and I, I don't know where the world's going to go, so I want a child that lives for five years. And you have a child that lives for five years, and then all of a sudden you start, they start experiencing their death phase, how monstrous that would be. That how dare you bring me into the world, this amazing world, and then tell me, I can't live long enough to actually experience it, but I can only live long enough just to please you. Um, And how it gives you a, a a view into how Batty viewed Tyrell as God being a complete monster. Like, no, you, you, you're, you're made as well as we could make you. You've done what you can do and goodbye. Um, And how the, the, the moral and ethical quandary of that um, is through the roof. You can't even, you can't even, I mean, I threw, I threw out there a couple episodes ago where we were talking about what these things are and would you keep, would you let them loose in society? Is that appropriate? But the question, you have to back that question up first. Is it even, is it appropriate to give replicants an uh, a four-year lifespan morally, ethically how dare we do that? Um, and then to see them all go through that phase of death, which I th- I, I, still feel like in 2049, there are some who have a lifespan. I, I know there's some did have open-ended lifespan, but I feel like some didn't either. Like I feel like the ones that were dangerous who did have open-ended lifespans, like Sapper, were the ones who they were trying to to remove from society, because how long are these replicants going to live? They can't control them. Whereas the new ones, the Wallace ones, they're controllable. They only live so long. Um, but, but but wait, before I get into that, um, I just think that the, the shroud of death is circling these people and circling these people. What do you do when you feel like you're going to die? What do you do? What does that cause you to do? Um, wh- where would that push you? in your own internal um, struggle of I want to live, I want to live. I mean, we see us in this world, people doing all sorts of things, like you're saying, to to extend their life, whether it's vitamins or plastic surgery or even uh, genetically engineering babies that happen today where they, they they'll go through each embryo or whatever and say, well, this is what could go on, this is what could go on. We can work on this. Embryo or these set of embryos, so they won't be predisposed to heart disease, to this and to that. So they'll have a longer, uh, fuller life, and then they'll also go ahead.
1: Well, just just to this point, and, get, and then I wait to keep going. There, you can even do that as an adult. You can get a genetic test that will yep. tell you what you're predisposed to, and you can find yep. ways to circumvent that, right? So, like yep. even even after you've been developing, you can say oh, I have a high likelihood of breast cancer. I might as well start doing this and getting screened for things, right? I,
0: I guess I, I've never really, like you said, I, I haven't really pondered replicant death and how horrible it is to bring something into the world and then say, sorry, that's it. Um, And they're not like ants. I mean, but I mean, there's also a moral and ethical question you could ask, you could pose to ants too. It's not like, oh, we're creating dogs or we're we're breeding dogs. Um, But that's exactly what they're doing to them. They're treating them like animals, Um, animals that look like us animals that live like us, that breathe like us, that talk like us. And then they're saying, but you're not worth it to live 80 years, 85 years, 70 years. Um, That's something I'm going to be thinking of for a while.
4: And also how arrogant for us to say, oh, we get to decide, we get to decide, Um, pardon me, we get to decide that you only get four years here. And in those four years, you're going to do what we say. Or yes, you get an open-ended lifespan, but you're not going to have the will to go against us we think you know the arrogance of men
1: yeah, and if you and if you do decide to go against us we reserve we'll the right them. as your manufacturers to destroy you, you oh know? yeah I don't want to um get like too too deep into this And I also really want to give the floor to, to dr months because I am curious to hear what he thinks about this stuff but just from a very personal place as you guys know I struggled for at least two months or so the last uh at, towards the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 with a, a very deep depression which for the first time since my basically my adolescence. Um, and in that time, one of the things that kept me up at night in a really bad, bad way, and this is something I've talked to Mike about, is the knowledge that my children will die someday. Which is something that's like so, it's, it's, it's so materially different from this conversation that we're having because this is not, I'm not going to terminate them at a date. They don't have like some sort of a, of a lifespan, you know, that I can see right now and I can act on. But like, but we have these kids and, and the knowledge that they will be killed By some biological process at some point um, was like devastating. And I don't think I had actually ever considered that until I was in this place where all these other depressive thoughts were getting to me. And so I'd be holding them and I'd be weeping silently in bed next to them, touching their hair and thinking like, oh my God, this, this, all of this will be gone and turn to dust someday, you know? and in a healthy frame of mind where I am now and in my normal life, that doesn't bother me because I realize that, you know, obviously the ephemeral nature of life is part of what gives it meaning and that we are all dust and we're all going back to it and blah, 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 blah. But there's those moments at late at night, sometimes when you're not in the right place and it hits you how tragic it is that like we are going to be gone someday and that our children will be gone someday and that all of this will eventually just vanish like, like tears and rain. And it's something that I think, is uh, is is really powerful. So that's a kind of a personal perspective on it. But from a perspective of what we're actually doing by engineering death at specific points in time, that's a whole different thing. That being said, like I have a, a really extensive history of heart disease in my family. That's something that I, I've been living with my whole life. It's something that I know. You know, many of my relatives have died quite young from very severe ischemic events. I know that's that's a risk factor, right? Um I personally mitigate that by exercising all the time. And that's something that I, I choose to do to try to stay that off and to eat well. But um, I know that, you know, I'm bringing kids into the world with Mica, and our kids will have potentially a ticking time bomb of a heart issue if they aren't really careful about it. And that's something that like, it's not a big deal and it's normal. You know, people get sick and people die. People have heart issues. But like, I know that my kids might die of a heart attack and that that could be my fault because of some faulty gene that I have that I didn't have any control over. So things like that, you know, obviously the intent is very different, but it's, it's worth noting from a, you know parent perspective, and I know Dr. Buns can speak to this too, um, as well as, as Micah, obviously, there's something really uh, deeply intense about the knowledge that all of this will vanish someday, and that you could be the one that was responsible for it, you know? I think that the four-year
2: lifespan emphasizes an aspect of Roy Batty um, and Pris that is rarely discussed, because I think... When I think about Roy Batty, I kind of think of him as a superman, a kind of super creature. Um, And Pris as well, to some extent. Um, But at the same time, they are enormously fragile. Um, And I was thinking about this in terms of uh, the battle between Deckard and Batty at the end of the original film. And I was thinking, there's Deckard, who is just a regular guy, as far as we know. I mean, you know, setting aside the, whether he's a replicant thing or not. You know, he's, he's, he's he has the strength of a regular guy. He has the intelligence of a regular guy. Okay, um, and yet with his gun, he can end Batty in one or two shots. Okay. Um, and I think that's the thing. I mean, there's Dora. She gets shot twice, or she gets shot twice or three times, and she's dead. Chris shot twice, and she's dead. Um, so the thing, yeah. So my thing is that the replicants are simultaneously physically enormously strong and mentally very intelligent, but no match whatsoever for a regular human with a gun. Um, so yeah. So there's this, So there's a fragility there to them. Um, in terms of the death thing I'm just reminded of a piece of work by Damien Hurst called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of the Living in the
1: Mind of Someone Living yeah right yeah
2: that's right um, and, um, and I think the thing that Roy Batty has that most humans don't have is that he is able to conceptualize his own death I work on the principle that I'm going to live forever um, I mean that you know if you analyze all of my life choices, all of my life choices are based on the idea that I will live forever and ever. Um, And I kind of assume my daughter will too. Um, I I genuinely experience the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. I I can't conceptualize my own death at all. So yeah, so I find it very difficult to get into Roy Batty's shoes on it. If somebody was to tell me, oh yeah, next week is your last week, I have literally no idea what that would do to me. Um, So yeah, so I think Roy Batty is simultaneously, and this this is another aspect of his fragility in the sense that he is somebody who has lived, less emotional maturity um, than an adult facing death. Uh, so he has a bigger burden, a bigger emotional burden to deal with and a smaller reservoir to draw on. Um, so it's just remarkable that he's able to handle it with the dignity that he does. Just one final point on Terrell. Um, so I love the speech, the EMS-3 recombination speech, if we can call it that. Um, and it seems to me that there is a turning point in the speech and it's the point where he says, but this is all academic and that's the point where he ceases being the scientist and he becomes the priest or the philosopher um, so the thing you know we, he, you were made as well as we could make you I would not take that in any sense literally on the basis that he switched modes of language he's no longer talking as the geneticist he's talking as the priest, the father, the philosopher um, so yeah so I wouldn't read too much into that in terms of what the science of that statement means I think that's a philosophical statement but there we are those are my rambling incoherent thoughts
1: but isn't it interesting that when we get to wallace he speaks from the prophet philosopher standpoint almost exclusively right not there's the academic and, mm. yeah. yeah there's there's the complete absence of academia and anything i mean he says nothing scientific and yet it's almost like you know as we've written an essay about together like it's almost as if <laughs> you know language doesn't matter to him because he's beyond it you know, yeah, well it's really easy to nice. do
0: what you want when you think you're god you know,
4: he he can come across as like a cult leader, even the way he's. Oh, for sure. The way for sure. Acting.
1: And the cult leaders of our modern age are the technologists. I would argue.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, one thing that struck me, just a, a sort of a phrase as I think about Batty. And even though, again, I don't know for sure. I don't, we have to talk about this at some point, like maybe when we're not recording, I want to get the details on what replicants in 2049 have a lifespan and which ones don't because I really believe, I feel like K's model have a lifespan, but I don't really know. But um, I was,
3: I was going to do the Nexus model pedantry again earlier when you were talking, because I, I think the answer to that is in the script, whether there are exceptions is plausible, but yeah, yeah, the, the Canon explains that to us. Mm-hmm. So to reiterate for the listeners, especially Uh, Nexus sixes are created with programming for their jobs, no implanted memories, which is why they're emotionally unstable um, and a four-year lifespan. Nexus seven, I'll keep it in the singular because if Deckard is a replicant, he's probably a seven. He has memories, but Rachel certainly has implanted memories and we find out later she's a seven. So the seven is this in between stage and we do find out certainly Deckard does not have a four year lifespan if he is a replicant and neither does Rachel because they lived longer and there's also other iterations of the script where it tells us that Rachel doesn't have that the eights and nines which are Wallace creations so Wallace started making the eights and then the nines they both do not have lifespans according to the story the eights, however, are more free and less inhibited. And so they are more likely to sort of run off and have to be tracked down, etc. The nines are more controlled, they don't explain to us what that process is. But that's where the baseline test comes in where they're trying to see if the nines are coming off of their programming and what you're seeing in 2049 is assuming that K's role is multiplied times however many thousands of Blade Runners there are there are um I'm not even sure if we see any human Blade Runners in 2049 we don't um
0: if they're even human to begin with
3: Right, that's what I mean. Is is the the Blade Runners we see we assume are replicants, and so essentially they have Nexus Nines, which are controllable, hunting down Nexus Eights. Um, all of these models, the Eights and the Nines, have implanted memories, but they do not have set lifespans. I'm just, the gonna, story tells us. I'm just going to I'm
0: just going to challenge you on that just for a minute, just because the 2049 opening scroll says. The collapse of ecosystems in the mid-2020s led to the rise of industrialist Neander Wallace, whose mastery of synthetic farming averted famine. Wallace acquired the remains of the Tyrell Corp and created a new line of replicants to obey. Many older replicants, Nexus 8s, with open-ended lifespans, survived. They specify that. These Nexus 8s have open-ended lifespans. They are hunted down and retired, which makes me believe that K or whoever else after that do not. I don't know. That's just that's the delineation that I have that makes me think something's going on here. But uh, just quickly though, too, how crazy is it? Not only did these monsters create closed lifespans, they also made them obey. They made them even more subservient. They they made them, for lack of better terms, a slave even worse than before. You you you're not even you're not even. you have no control over what you do. You do what we tell you to do, and you're you're programmed that way, or whatever. Anyways,
2: on the lifespan of Nexus nines, I think that's a clue in um, in the short Nexus Dawn, um, where Wallace says to the um, the magistrates, he says, "These um, you know, the, these will this generation of replicants will live as long as the customer is prepared to pay." Oh. So I think the idea of the Nexus Nine is you, as the customer, you decide: is this going to be a four-year model? Is this going to be a six-year model? Um, you know, is this going to last me twenty years and mine out a planet for me? So I, I think that's the that's the thinking there.
0: That
2: makes it sound
4: Customizable. I, I yeah. It could be like we don't know how the technology advanced, and how interesting is it to think that they could tamper with some sort of sequence in their process of making these replicants and say, you know what? Oh, you want 15 years? Yeah, I'll make this one 15 years. Oh, you only need that for like the four-year contract. So we'll just give the standard four-year contract for you. And that's all customizable. Whereas before it was, sorry, we we did the best we could or we, we, we made you for four years. That's what you get. It's really, really interesting to think about.
3: Yeah, and, and I also, I may have misspoken when I said Wallace made the eights and the nines. That opening scroll makes me think that Um, eights were still a Tyrell product Mm -hmm. and that uh, Tyrell was in the middle of making eights, which were essentially the Nexus eight is a Nexus seven, except the seven was a prototype and only done once or twice. The eights are like the full line of these non-lifespan limited um, memory implant. They were the first, if you set Rachel aside, they were the first manufactured series that all had implanted memories that were released without a lifespan and with
1: memories. The eights were rushed into production though after the events of the first film right they came out in
0: 2020 was the first one.
4: Mm I also remember Tyrell wasn't making anything because he was dead.
0: (laughs) But his company could have survived like they could have moved into CEO or whatever.
4: Who took over? Well
0: I don't think anybody took over I think it just went out of business. Tyrell's niece the original Rachel.
3: it's like oh
0: that's great uh we should move on to listener feedback because I don't want to keep Dr. Bunce up that late and uh but there's I I it's we this is another episode where I came in like oh what are we gonna really talk about and here we are it always I'm, happens. I'm
1: biting my tongue so hard it hurts right now because I, I know we need to get the listener feedback and I know it's dawn where robin is right now but there's like <laughs> hey look it's okay You know
2: basically oh, totally. i'm committed to this so I'm, I'm here until you know until i don't my, my until my inset date your my expiration date whatever you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm here until
1: but that it's just it's just so i i really feel like this this notion of controlled death is something that like deserves a whole separate conversation because of the philosophical and moral implications of it but also Do because it. of the biological implications of it for the replicants totally it's you know, as I've said, and, and many times in these episodes, are, are to me like the most fascinating of all because, like, they are, they like uh, that—that's like the key to what replicants are to me, right? They, like, they were the—they were the closest to us, and that was a problem. And I think that is a really fascinating thing to explore from a death standpoint. What that actually means when you have somebody who's indecipherably non-human, and say, now it's time for you to die, and you can get away with it because they were manufactured somehow. I mean, it's just. So we'll come back. We'll come back. We'll come back to it.
0: It. it reminds me of a couple of cases. Well. They're similar, but they're different, where this guy was, I don't know if he was suing his family, but he was like, how dare you bring me into this world just to, to die in it? You, we have children, and we know they're going to die, and we make that choice. Yeah, we wanted you. Why did you bring me in? Because we wanted you. But I'm going to die. Yeah, well, so are we. You know, it's conundrum. It's it's a difficult thing, and then you can infer that to God, like that whole which could be Neander Wallace. Anyways, it's a rabbit hole.
1: And, and the fact that life and not even on the macro on the micro level that we've been talking about with cell death and cell decay and things, but life as a concept, writ larger across the universe, is something that can only exist because of death. We were born out of an explosion, right? All of the particulate matter that came together to create us was pulverized over millennia. You know? I mean it's it's yeah, we are the product of death. Just like um, a phoenix. And, and that's where we live. Yeah. It's, yeah. you think
0: about even forest fires, some of the, the the best thing that can happen to soil and to forests are fires. Because it enriches everything and it grows back even better. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: I feel like we started smoking a joint at some point in this conversation. <laughs> but I don't know. But it was
4: about 10 minutes we ago. We should probably get to the feedback. Yeah, let's do the
1: listeners. Yeah. Okay. I can,
3: I can jump into some of that, but yeah, I I think this dichotomy that we're talking about is uh, philosophically interest because interesting, because it reminds me of like, to be truly happy, you have to know what sadness is. Like you have to know the flip side of the coin. Otherwise you have nothing to compare it to if that's just what you go through in life. And so to really appreciate life, you have to understand that death is a part of it. Um, To make an even more simple analogy for for the gamers out there, and I know certainly me and Patrick can relate to this, and some of you have played around. Gamers rise up. It's like playing a difficult video game where it's easy to die and maybe the checkpoint's way back. And so every time you're like, oh, man, you got to start over. And like when you get that progress, it, it feels like an accomplishment because it was really hard. As soon as someone gives you a cheat code where you don't die and you have unlimited ammo and you have super strength, it's fun for like 20 minutes. And then you're like, well, there's no stakes anymore. I can't die. I can't, and and so I think there's something philosophically there to the fact that like you need the stakes and you need the flip side of the coin to really appreciate life and to appreciate um, what is good about life. You know, you have to know that it it can and will be taken away from you at some point, and you don't know when. So you have to appreciate every moment. But yeah, to jump into um, we can't read all of them because there was a lot of response on this, but I'm going to start with Rick Howard, who is our wonderful administrator for fields of Calantha, which we can continue this discussion there. If you like, there's lots of commentary already on this discussion of whether replicants are born or uh, manufactured, but Rick's opinion was I'm of the paradigm that replicants are organic, rapidly grown in tanks and emerge with all the memories read as trained in the technical and soft skills needed to perform their function, or quote-unquote programmed in. They are virtually human after all. It is this of humans but not human, or superhuman if we think about it, that makes them worrisome to the Blade Runner universe society. To make them anything less misses out on the story. Servants until they decide they are no longer. The short-lived space above and beyond also played in the space, calling out social issues between naturally born humans and the in vitro's, extraterrestrial growth, test tube babies made and bred to serve. Arguably, the Marvel universe has played here as well for years, anti-mutant leagues and all. And I, and I like that um, Rick brings up a couple of other science fiction um, franchises where, again, Our very human need for categorization and discrimination comes in. And I think X Men's a great example of that, where um, mutants are scary and people are worried about them and there's, yeah, they're prejudiced against them essentially.
0: Yeah, uh, Dominic Nardi actually talks about this in his quote from. Your book, uh, Dr. Bunce, Blade Runner 2049 in Philosophy, This Breaks the World. Dominic says, I think thematically it makes more sense if replicants were entirely organic and born from artificial wombs. As I argued in my chapter for uh, 2049 in Philosophy, much of the discrimination against replicants mirrors discrimination against ethnic groups in our own world. And political scientists now understand ethnic categories to be in large part, in large part socially constructed rather than biological constructs than simply biological constructs. White or Thai only has a meaning under certain contexts, and is only socially or politically relevant under certain contexts, i.e. white is relevant in the US, but less so in predominantly white countries like Sweden. One of the themes of the Blade Runner films is the tendency of people to find differences that divide us. People dislike replicants because they know that they originated differently, even though physically you can't tell them apart from humans and need a sophisticated VK test to detect any differences. Blade Runner 2049 is about breaking those barriers down and what happens if the last physically verifiable or objective point of differentiation between replicants and humans' live childbirth can be overcome. By contrast, if the replicants were actually artificial it would make the distinctions between human and replicant more concrete more scientific and rational it would undermine the point that the lines we draw between types of people usually are pretty irrational and not based in any objective measure
4: see that makes me go back to that scene with wallace and the newborn in love and what he says about um of about creating replicants that can um reproduce so that they can be millions more it's 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 almost like, and I kind of read it, and I don't know if this is like stupid of me or not, but when I first saw that in theaters, the first time I heard him say that line, I was thinking about how that would blur the line between replicants and humans and how perhaps that could be the goal of Wallace. Like you're almost building a better human race if you can blur that line a little bit more. You know what I mean, and that comment kind of makes me go back into that mindset, and and how how like um, shattering that would be for the the humans who were born in the quote unquote like human way that you were made with a, a father and a mother and born in that way, and that would be upsetting to many humans, and that would be why we would use those derogatory. Remarks to separate us. So that's what that comment just made me think about, like my original interpretation of that line. So we can, because he says, so we can be millions more. So it's almost like he, his, maybe his goal could plausibly be to build a better human race. And that in and of itself would make him God in perhaps his mind. Like he would be creating another, more stable, stronger human race, if he could have replicants that could reproduce.
2: We make angels in the service of civilization. Yes, there were bad angels once. I make good angels now. That is how I took us to nine new worlds. Nine. A child can count to nine on fingers. We should own the stars.
1: Yes, sir.
3: Every leap of civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. We lost our stomach for
2: slaves, unless engineered.
1: But I can only make so many. No, and it fits in line with what we know about Wallace, right? Which is he saved the world once with the protein farming, right? And now that he's saved the world, he can essentially be a god on earth and, and a god would like to create. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
3: I think one of uh, Yoel's comments is worth reading here. He says, Hi, everyone. In my humble opinion, the movies are about the, effect of oppression, the effects of oppression and the de- dehumanization of the oppressed by the oppressors, period. While this is a prominent part of the main theme of The first Blade Runner, I feel it does get far more nuanced with 2049, with humans being at the top of the oppressive system and then each model of replicant oppressing the older models before them, and then the older models oppressing dehumanizing the holograms, joy, all the while never occurring to the oppressed that they were oppressing others. This to me speaks volumes of our own modern society and the way we too unconsciously oppress others, be them people whose labors we exploit for our own convenience, Think of the people who clean up after us, who make our goods, or serve us in restaurants and in retail, or the people towards whom we have implicit biases. The oppression is even more severe when we apply this obliviousness to the suffering of the animals we raise in deplorable conditions for our own indulgence, which we touched on some of this in our previous episodes. Aren't we all sentient, and wouldn't it be a kinder, gentler, more peaceful world if we harness technology to end the suffering of sentient beings? Be them people who are... Of lower formal educational achievement, underrepresented ethnicities, unauthorized immigration status, or even animals we refer to as livestock. My takeaway about how replicants were made or how they got here is about as important as the Deckard question, meaning Deckard. It doesn't matter what they are or who or how they got here. What is important is that they are here and they are sentient, even if only digital in Joy's case. The horrible truth is that we, too, are oppressed by our own exploiters, debtors, credit card companies, exploitive employers, the police, etc. And the sooner we all realize the cruelty and harm of our own thoughtless oppression, the sooner we'd all be truly free. Which is what I think Kay finally achieved in those last hours, when he was finally, truly free, and at peace with himself and the world.
1: And I just want to throw this out there to, to all of you, because this was something that I want. One of the things I was, I was biting my tongue on, but because Yoel so beautifully framed, it, I, I want to kind of bring it up, <clears throat> which is Kay's death, which has always perplexed me a little bit, because although like he's clearly been through some physical trauma, um, the way that he dies reminds me, of course, of Batty, not only because of the musical cue that's happening, but because he's it seems, al- it seems almost elective. It seems like he's at the point where he's ready to sort of shut down and he can lay down and batty can stop pushing the nails into his hand, you know, once and for all, like similarly K can like lean back and, and, and leave. Um, and I don't know, I've never been totally sure what was up with K's death. I mean, if you remember when the movie came out, a a lot of, uh, online discussions centered around, did he die or not? Right. Like there was a a lot of people who were confused. The first time I saw it, I thought he was alive (laughs) at the end of the movie. I I thought he was basically just like, you know, at, coming to the end of his journey and was able to be at peace, right? And then, of course, I got the script, and I was like, oh, he's dead. Okay. <laughs> and then I saw it a hundred more times, and I was like, yeah, clearly they're hinting, especially with the musical cue going on, that he's that he's deceased. But the way it's framed is so peaceful. It's just like Batty when he droops his head down and the dove flies away. Right? It's a, a very beautiful moment. Um, and maybe it speaks to what Jamie was saying before about how, you know, maybe Kay's maybe model of Nexus 9 was ordered with a set lifespan of 10 years or something and he was at actually also at the end of that journey and was fighting through these final things basically to um because i guess actually I, i'm I, I i'm not going to go on a tangent but i do want to just throw out there that replicants have a termination date but they also die before that termination date quite a lot right so it's not like necessarily when they hit four years they just turn off right batty doesn't make it to four years he dies when he's three what happens though is that towards the end right
0: no right well, because he okay. it's starting
1: because he's sixteen and he dies in twenty nineteen, right?
0: Maybe it's maybe it. Yeah, oh, it's
3: the the very number, end of twenty. What's Roy's uh, incept date? Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: no, <laughs> it's, it's twenty sixteen. So my, my point being that like he didn't make it actually to four years, right? He he. It might have been February. Yeah, maybe it was an
0: approximation. It. Maybe he was close what? to it. Maybe it was like if it was in November, maybe his incept date or maybe his retirement date was January. I mean, so uh, right. things I, were
3: I it's January eighth, twenty sixteen. So there we go. I I remember this discussion because Roy's incept date is what led to a discussion about if we start with the assumption that Roy died on January eighth. What I say eighth? Yeah. <laughs> at the four-year mark yeah yeah 2020 then the argument is that the span of the film of the original blade runner took place somewhere in between potentially the very end of november of 2019 and the beginning of january of 2020 and we've gone back and forth on this a lot there's no answer to it and rick howard's been real involved in this conversation because it depends on how you it's it's like the story of Genesis. Did it really happen over seven days or is that metaphorical? In, in this case, it's like, are we seeing sequential events where you're really seeing the same night or the same series of nights? Or are we seeing a compressed timeline where this detective is looking at things over a four to six week period? And so it's – plus. so the answer has to be one of two things. Either Roy Batty died the night of January 8th because he, his clock came to the end of its ticking – or he died before that, somewhere in between November and January of twenty, uh, January of twenty twenty, and November of twenty nineteen. That's a good question. We don't really have an answer to it, but that's been brought up a
1: lot. Yeah, and and we don't have time too. to get super Plausible into it, either
4: way. Too,
1: it could be. But but I guess I guess my point is that like it it doesn't seem to me like it's Cinderella striking midnight and he just dies, right? Like there's there's something going on. I, I always think of it almost like a prion disorder where he's like losing sensation in its hands. He's starting to act kind of strange. It's like, there's like where you think the the protein that's accelerating the end of his life all of a sudden.
3: So you think the four year thing is approximate? Like they live around four years. The four
1: year is like the upper limit. And then it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the human lifespan, you know, whatever it is in the world right now, 82 years or 86 years or something. Um, like, you know, you get close to it, but not quite the difference. Of course, if the, if you're, you know, your expected lifespan at birth is 86 years, but you die at 83 years that's not as drastic of a thing as if your expected lifespan is four years and you die at three years and nine months because proportionally that's like you were saying one eighteenth even more than that, right? Like that is a huge, a huge deal. But anyway, yeah, I, I, the whole, so, so when Kay dies at the end of the film, like part of me kind of feels like he was at the termination of his life expectancy and that what we're basically seeing is his final, acts and then it kind of expires. That's or not here right there, but Yeah,
0: or I think there it, there perhaps are accelerants when these these replicants are damaged, um there's ex they're, they're accelerated. Their death is accelerated. And Kay kept looking at his injuries almost like, yeah, this is terminal. Um he got pierced in the side. I mean K was beaten up way worse than Batty was. Um so to me it looked like those wounds were his death wounds and he knew it and whatever, whatever, um, in or, um, retirement date or internal retirement date was going to happen. it didn't almost matter because the damage his body experienced just accelerated that time. Um, so it was from a cost. Sorry, go. No, I'm sorry.
1: Just from a cost-value analysis, knowing what we know about Nexus 9s, to me what makes sense is that his creator would put something in there, like a clause, saying if this amount of damage happens, it's more expensive to repair it than just to get a new one. Right. So it would be some sort of like, okay, he passed the point, this means that he will die as a result of it. Like he's a Blade Runner, he's
4: going to take damage. So Mm -hmm. if if his damage, if this product's damage gets to a certain capacity, there's like an automatic sort of okay, we're going to close it down. Almost like a product that doesn't make it to its warranty.
0: Yeah. Well, even Joshi in the beginning says, I'm not paying for that. Almost like there yeah, is a right. system in place for repairing these replicants that mm-hmm. uses some type of whatever biological, maybe they go back to Wallace's headquarters and they pay for it because this unit is important. Uh, I just wanted to make sort of kind of a finalish comment, but I'm curious one thing that we haven't discussed. I'm curious in terms of replicants, the need for them. Why the world needed replicants? What was going on in the world that they needed to create something to do these things for them? Was it because socially we got to the point where like you can't treat people this way, you have to pay them this amount of money. There all of those constructs that we live in today, maybe those did get better even though the 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 um The climate world got worse. Maybe socially we got better. And so we got to the point where you can't hire illegal immigrants, number one, because there's no such thing anymore, and the world is the world, and people go and travel. So how do we do this? How do we get things done? Because we can't use humans anymore. We can't pay for them. They're not going to do it. And there are laws existing that we can't force them to. What do we do? We make them. And- I think.
3: To answer your question, I in my mind, this is mainly driven by capitalism and technology. Oh, for so sure. We're, so we're seeing some of this already where dangerous work has been – um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not contracted out, but outfitted to robots. So bomb disposal is something that SWAT teams, if they have the budget for it, have a robot to do it. Drones – Combat drones that drop bombs and fire Hellfire missiles and and do surveillance have long been you know full size aircraft. They're big. Predator
1: drones been around for a long yeah.
3: Predator drones have been around for what twenty years now or something. And those are unmanned, right? Because replacing technology is one thing. Replacing a human with all their training and life insurance and it is staying out of the philosophical. Just talking about costs. Mm-hmm. Um, same with astronauts, uh, you know, Navy SEALs, special for all those humans have a sunk cost on top of just the fact that it's a human life, but just looking at it from an economic perspective, think about coal space
1: launches, virtually none of them are manned anymore, right? Like right. there's the reason why, like when a couple of years ago, a NASA, sat- NASA satellite delivering rocket exploded and it wasn't this huge tragedy is because it was an unmanned launch. Like, There were very few humans on spacecrafts anymore, right? right Right. i
4: always took that it was due to the the planet is decaying around them so they need to go off world it's too dangerous to go off world send the most human thing we can without sending humans we'd make the replicants and send them
3: right and again a lot of humans right and a lot of them just don't want to do it like imagine if we're still coal mining in the future you know people that have been doing that for generations It's mostly due to habit and a lack of good options, but nobody enjoys coal mining. That's like a dirty, super tough job underground. You get lung disease from it. If we had inexpensive technology to do that all with automated equipment, we would do it. So I I think one big part of that is driven by technology and the fact that companies like Tesla – you know, everyone's trying to make self-driving cars, self-driving trucks. Uh, Uber drones are in the future, the near future, where you can have four-passenger quad helicopter drones that are flying people around. Um, the I'm toll booths to on bridges have been replaced.
0: They're already building um, things in LA to house them. Mm-hmm.
3: So, Yay. so I think it starts with technology. And then through capitalism, there's a market for that technology, and all those humans who were doing that before are either A, out of work, or B, have the freedom to pursue other things, but we are going to relegate the nastier, dirtier, more dangerous things to non-humans. I think that's a natural progression that we are going to see in in our lifetimes, and we've already been seeing.
0: Well, but again, that – you the language that you're using we've relegated those things to non-humans so we they got to a place where the world got to a place where we can't have humans do these things anymore but we need something sort of like us to do it um because they can and so they create them so we lived in a world where socially um maybe there was a a a universal government. And each continent or whatever had their own police force, or each city or each whatever had their own sector, had their own police force. LA LA is a sector, so it has a police force. Um, And there was this equality, this global equality. um, And a lot of things were eradicated, but there were still a lot of things that they needed to do. And they needed sort of people to do it, but they can't do it with regular people. They have to do it with Non people that are people, and
4: that's why the language is so important, right? Yeah, that's why I think the language is so important. That's why they're going to use those derogatory terms totally. so they can sleep better at night. You know what yep. I mean? Like yep. it's okay for a replicant to go do something that will kill them because they're not a human. They weren't born. Mm-hmm. That's that's why totally. I think the language is so important.
2: Yeah. On the subject of language, again, and the word born and it being important, I'm just reminded of the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution, which says all persons born, um, blah, 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 have these rights. Um, so if you can immediately say these people were never born... They were manufactured then all of a sudden they have none of the legal protections and i know the question of whether there is a functioning legal system in 2049 you know is 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 an open one but if there is it would you know there there are lots of legal systems in the world which have this idea that being born in a particular place is is significant so if you can manufacture um, replicants in the territory of the united states but but get have a technical loophole around this issue of being born then you have these creatures which are to all intents and purposes human and can function like humans and can do all the great things that humans do but because they're not quote unquote born they have they lose all their legal protections immediately that's a great point you don't
1: that's have fucking to Fucking an awesome point yeah you
2: don't you don't have to go into
3: 2049 in our world into 30 years in the future um, if you just accelerate the technology if we had that technology right now, The wording of our current laws and constitutions in the US, for example, and probably in Britain too, is just by default. You don't have to make a law making them lesser than because our laws already say born or natural born even. When you think about, for example, whether someone born outside of the US um, can be eligible to be president – the wording is that they have to be natural-born U.S. citizens. So as an example, I was born in Italy of an American parent. So the argument, this has never been taken to the Supreme Court, but the argument would be that I'm just as natural-born a U.S. citizen as Jamie or Patrick, who were born in the U.S., or Micah. Um, And that's based on British law, where the colonists in the colonies who were British citizens were considered eligible for office in Britain because they were natural-born. But not to get into politics, again, my point being that all of this natural born stuff only works for humans. If you create a subspecies or a new creation of human that is almost human, but really they're manufactured, biological, artificial, whatever you want to call them, none of that stuff applies to them automatically. So the subjugation and oppression and persecution of them would require all kinds of new laws to be avoided or for any kind of protection because they would be treated as uh, like, washing machines in terms of ownership and control the way it's been described before in the scripts that's a really great point robin
1: the legal aspects of that alone robin are so are so brilliant and it speaks to something else which i think is important to note that that you know what the 14th amendment is even though you're not an american citizen i guarantee and i'm, I'm saying this because i had to i, I was like Please remind me what that is, because I don't have that knowledge <laughs> just sitting there. That that's what the Fourteenth Amendment says, right? The mm. reality is that most people outside of the United States who study the United States know it better than the people who are born in the United States, and that most natural-born, quote-unquote, United States citizens would fail the shit out of a out of a citizenship test, oh, right? I would. And 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 you know, I, I took AP U.S. history. You know, I've I've done all of this stuff in my lifetime, and I do not have that working knowledge sitting in my brain right now because I'm not somebody who had to learn it as you know an adult. It was just sort of i was inculcated right so i think that like this idea is so it's so crazy to me that like you can be just just by virtue of being born across the border to foreign born parents if you move there the next day and then you spend your life as a legal scholar in the united states you are ineligible for it even after you become a citizen, mm. even after you're called mm. like a citizen of the United States. Not every citizen of the United States is eligible to run for president regardless of age or background. And I think that's just like, the, and, and again, that is a wonderful example of the discriminatory usage of language and terminology that we've been talking about this entire time. That And and it's something that is weaponized politically constantly in the United States. And I'm not going to get into that on, on this episode, but it is very commonly Assumed by certain citizens in this country, and I'm sure in, in many other countries around the world with you know nationalist populist movements and things like that, that like there is something better about you if you happen to have been born somewhere, right? If you happen to have been born with a certain social standing or with a certain background or with in, in a certain place that you have some sort of access to something better, and I think that that's. Uh, it, it's just, it's just very, very current, and you know, and it's no, no better exemplified than the fact that you knew what the Fourteenth Amendment was immediately, and, and I, I truly had to think about what it was when you said it.
4: it's a good one this isn't for the opposite
1: for, for, for you i'm just i'm just i'm just expressing my gratitude for you uh you know as and, and and recognizing the fact that you're a you know british citizen and you're and you're you know giving us background on our own constitution and
2: <laughs> well lots of british people think that britain doesn't have a constitution um which of course is rubbish you can't have a constitutional crisis without having a constitution and we have plenty of constitutional crises so there Had we a are a few of those yeah yeah absolutely
3: One would make the same argument for the fact that Italy has a government, technically, even though it's crumbling and falling apart every two years, and there's votes of non-confidence, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, technically, they do have a government. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> See, now I well, want to talk about Berlusconi, but I, this is oh something no. that this is going to go, this will go on for the rest of the night.
4: Our listeners have turned us off.
1: Yeah, and, and, but Dan, offline, we should talk about that and the formation of this political party and what that says. Oh right God, here. yeah. Says, As we come to the close of this episode, that could clearly go on longer than it is, but we are stopping for your sake and for the sake of the conversation and also to let Dr. Bunce get to the bed. Uh, I would like to just point out that many of the comments we read tonight um, and many of the comments we couldn't get to tonight for the sake of time were submitted by patrons to Shoulder of Orion and Perfect Organism. Uh, and, and it's not surprising to me at all because you who support the show are incredibly dedicated. When I mentioned earlier that I've gotten text messages and that we've gotten emails and that we've gotten, you know, Facebook messenger things on this, like the the patrons of these shows are so incredibly dedicated and we are so thankful for that, for that level of engagement beyond just financial help and beyond just being on the website Um, You all are the backbone of this entire enterprise and you're the backbone of Blade Runner fandom because we are luckily at at a point where we are a a big part of Blade Runner fandom and and it's, and it's due and largely because of, and thanks to you. If you are one of those people who was on the fence about joining Patreon, if you're one of those people who is contributing and sending us text messages and emails, but hasn't yet signed on formally to Patreon, you have a matter of a couple of days to join at the $2 level and be grandfathered in when our rate changes on March 1st. So this episode will air on February 23rd. Um, and that gives you just about a week to, uh, to join Patreon. You can go to um, blade runner podcast.com slash support and go to perfect support. We'll send you a message. You can sign up at whatever level you would like to, but that $2 level that gives you access to frame rate, gives you access to shit show, gives you access to other, you know, one-off projects that we have coming down the pipeline, that $2 rate expires on March 1st. It goes to $4. So if you are on the fence, sign up now and you will have that $2 rate forever. You will stay there. Um, And that's as a thank you to people who have already been with us for this whole time. We're not going to start charging you double for what you already get, but to support the creation of new content, including video game content, including other things that we want to start bringing to you guys. um, And just in recognition of the amount of work that has been happening to make all of this new content happen, we're going to $4 as the minimum rate for expanded content access. So again, go to bladerunnerpodcast.com support and sign up and join that community that you know you're already a part of if you're listening to this because we are dependent on you, not just for money, but for ideas and for camaraderie. You are here with us uh, and, and fandom is more vibrant for it.
3: Yeah, I want to take the opportunity to jump in and thank all of our patrons very much as well. They've also, you guys have been really supportive throughout the pandemic where, you know, people's finances have changed and yet people have still contributed the two, six, eight bucks a month, whatever they can throw down. Um, If you want an example of some of these discussions and the films that we talk about, um, we did put out a bunch of free episodes recently, the Mandalorian season one, uh, we put out as a bonus. So if you look through either the shoulder of Orion or Perfect Orgasm feed, you will see them highlighted as episodes and again mandalorian season one moonlight um spider-man into the spider-verse uh there will be blood there's a good solid six or seven film discussions where you can get a sampling of frame rate um before you sign up so go check those out and thank you again everyone for your
0: support thank you micah and dr Brunts for coming on really appreciate it thank you great being
2: here lovely to be here
0: If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.